Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Ted O'Connell, author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets and Chief Content Officer for Inside the Boards. This is the Step 2 Secrets podcast, where we provide you the high-yield content from Step 2 Secrets in audio format, as well as question breakdowns, so you can study on the go and get back to reclaiming some of your life. Here is the question breakdown for this case. We have an 81-year-old woman who is brought to the emergency room via ambulance complaining of an excruciating headache that began two hours ago. The headache involves the entire head, radiates to the posterior neck, and is worse with head movement. There are no other complaints. Medical history is significant for hypertension and two myocardial infarctions that occurred five and ten years ago. Medications are enalapril, atenolol, and furosemide. Physical examination is notable for a blood pressure of 185 over 110 millimeters of mercury, and nuchal rigidity is present. Neurologic examination reveals symmetrical pupils that dilate to light and accommodation, intact extraocular muscles, and diminished Achilles reflexes bilaterally. Which of the following is the next most appropriate step in management of this patient? Choice A is intravenous morphine sulfate, B, is obtain a computed tomography CT scan of the head, C, is obtain a lumbar puncture to rule out intracranial hemorrhage, D, is start intravenous nitroprusside, and E, is treat the headache with sumatriptan. So let's go through this case. What we have is an older woman who presents with an excruciating headache that we might even call the worst headache of her life. And on examination, she has elevated blood pressure, nuchal rigidity, and decreased Achilles reflexes. So there's a sign that something significant is going on, especially with this pretty sudden onset headache. So this raises the likelihood of an intracranial hemorrhage, or more specifically, a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So looking at the choices, we really want to be able to make a diagnosis before we start with any treatments. So you can essentially rule out choice A, which is morphine, choice D, which is nitroprusside. We wouldn't want to just lower the blood pressure without knowing what's going on. And choice E, which is sumatriptan. So that leaves us then with getting a CT of the head or getting a lumbar puncture. And so looking at these choices, choice B, getting the CT of the head, is the most correct one. 
uh, because that's the, the most appropriate first step in management of a suspected subarachnoid hemorrhage. A CT can be negative in up to 20% of cases, and lumbar puncture can be diagnostic if there's blood in the CSF that does not dilute in successive tubes. However, we want to make sure that we get that CT scan uh, before performing a lumbar puncture. So choice B, getting CT scan of the head is the correct answer here. And the learning point for this case is that intracranial hemorrhage presents acutely as an excruciating headache that is often described as the worst headache of one's life. Neuroimaging with CT or MRI is mandatory to confirm the diagnosis of intracranial hemorrhage and to exclude ischemic stroke or intracranial mass. If the neuroimaging is negative and an intracranial hemorrhage is still suspected, an LP or lumbar puncture should be performed to confirm blood in the spinal fluid. This is really a do-not-miss diagnosis and requires a lumbar puncture for diagnosis confirmed by blood in the spinal fluid. Before a lumbar puncture, however, a non-contrast CT or an MRI is required to rule out an intracranial mass, which would make a lumbar puncture contraindicated due to a risk of herniation from elevated intracranial pressure. And with that, we'll get back to our show. This is the neurosurgery chapter of USMLE Step 2 Secrets, 5th edition. Question 1. List the four major types of intracranial hemorrhages. 1. Subdural hematoma. 2. Epidural hematoma. 3. Subarachnoid hemorrhage. 4. Intracerebral hemorrhage. Question 2. What causes a subdural hematoma? How do you recognize and treat it? Subdural hematomas are due to bleeding from veins that bridge the cortex and dural sinuses. On CT scan, the hematoma is crescent-shaped. Subdural hematomas are common in alcoholics and victims of head trauma. They may present immediately after trauma or as long as one to two months later. If the patient has a history of head trauma, always consider the diagnosis of subdural hematoma. If large, expanding, or accompanied by neurologic deficits, treat with surgical evacuation. Question 3. What causes an epidural hematoma? How do you recognize and treat it? Epidural hematomas are due to bleeding from meningeal arteries, classically the middle meningeal artery. On CT scan, the hematoma is lenticular in shape. At least 85% of epidural hematomas are associated with a skull fracture, classically a temporal bone fracture and many patients have an ipsilateral blown pupil, a dilated, fixed, non-reactive pupil on the side of the hematoma. The classic history includes head trauma with loss of consciousness, followed by a lucid interval of minutes to hours, and then neurologic deterioration. Treatment usually includes surgical evacuation. Question 4. Define subarachnoid hemorrhage. What causes it? How is it treated? A subarachnoid hemorrhage describes bleeding between the arachnoid and pia mater. The most common cause is trauma, followed by ruptured berry aneurysms. Blood can be seen in the cerebral ventricles and surrounding the brain or brainstem on CT scan. The classic patient describes the worst headache of my life, although many die or are unconscious before they reach the hospital. Patients who are awake have signs of meningitis positive Koenig sign and Brzezinski sign. 
Remember the association between polycystic kidney disease and berry aneurysms. CT is the test of choice and should be performed before performing lumbar puncture. A lumbar puncture shows grossly bloody cerebrospinal fluid or xanthochromia, a yellowish color of the CSF due to breakdown of heme into bilirubin. Treat with support of vital functions, anticonvulsants, and observation. Once the patient is stable, do a CT or MRI angiogram to look for aneurysms or arteriovenous malformations, which may be treatable with surgical clipping or catheter-directed angiographic procedures. Question 5. What causes an intracerebral hemorrhage? How do you recognize and treat it? Intracerebral hemorrhage describes bleeding into the brain parenchyma. The most common cause is hypertension, but it also may be due to other forms of stroke, trauma, arteriovenous malformations, coagulopathies, or tumors. Two-thirds of intracerebral hemorrhages occur in the basal ganglia, especially with hypertension. The patient may present with coma or, if awake, contralateral hemiplegia and hemisensory deficits. Blood, which appears white on CT scan, can be seen in the brain parenchyma and may extend into the ventricles. Surgery is reserved for large, accessible hemorrhages, although usually it is not helpful. Question 6. What does a unilateral, dilated, unreactive pupil after head trauma suggest? A unilateral, dilated, unreactive pupil in the setting of head trauma most likely represents impingement of the ipsilateral third cranial nerve and impending uncle herniation due to increased intracranial pressure. Of the different intracranial hemorrhages, this scenario is seen most commonly with epidural hemorrhages. Do not do a lumbar puncture in any patient with a blown pupil because you may precipitate uncle herniation and death. Instead, order a CT or MRI scan of the head. Question 7. List the four classic signs of basilar skull fracture. 1. Periorbital ecchymosis, also called raccoon eyes. 2. Postauricular ecchymosis, also called battle sign. 3. Hemotympanum, which is blood behind the eardrum. And 4. CSF odorrhea or rhinorrhea which is leakage of CSF, which is clear in appearance, from the ears or nose. Question 8. What is the imaging test of choice for skull fractures of the calvarium? How are they managed? Skull fractures of the calvarium, the roof of the skull, are best seen on CT scan, which is preferred over plain x-rays. Surgical indications include contamination, depression with impingement on brain parenchyma, or open fracture with CSF leak. Otherwise, such fractures can be observed and generally heal on their own. Question 9. True or false? Severe, permanent neurologic deficits may occur after head trauma, even with a negative CT or MRI scan of the head. True. Head trauma can cause cerebral contusion or shear injury of the brain parenchyma, also known as diffuse axonal injury both of which may not show up on a CT or MRI, but may cause temporary or permanent neurologic deficits. Question 10. What finding suggests increased intracranial pressure? Increased intracranial pressure, also known as intracranial hypertension, 
is highly suggested in the setting of bilaterally dilated and fixed pupils. Normal intracranial pressure is between 5 and 15 millimeters of mercury. Less specific symptoms include headache, papilledema, nausea and vomiting, and mental status changes. Look also for the classic Cushing triad, which consists of increasing blood pressure, bradycardia, and respiratory irregularity. Question 11. How should increased intracranial pressure be managed? The first step is to elevate the head of the bed and intubate the patient. Once intubated, the patient should be hyperventilated for rapid lowering of intracranial pressure through decreased intracranial blood volume due to cerebral vasoconstriction. Mannitol diuresis, or boluses of hypertonic saline, that is 3% normal saline, can be tried to lessen cerebral edema. Furosemide is also used, but is less effective. Ventriculostomy should be performed if hydrocephalus is identified. Barbiturate coma and decompressive craniotomy through burr holes are last-ditch measures. Anticonvulsant therapy should be started if seizures are suspected. Prophylactic anticonvulsants are controversial, but may be warranted in some cases. Remember that cerebral perfusion pressure equals blood pressure minus intracranial pressure. In other words, do not treat hypertension initially in a patient with increased intracranial pressure because hypertension is the body's way of trying to increase cerebral perfusion. Lowering blood pressure in this setting may worsen symptoms or even cause a stroke. Question 12. True or false? Lumbar puncture is the first test that should be performed in a patient with increased intracranial pressure. False. Never do a lumbar puncture in any patient with signs of increased intracranial pressure until a CT scan is done first. If the CT is totally negative, you can proceed to a lumbar puncture, if needed. If you do a lumbar puncture first, you may precipitate uncle herniation and death. Question 13. How do patients with spinal cord trauma present? How are they managed? Patients with spinal cord trauma often present with spinal shock, that is, loss of reflexes and motor function, as well as hypotension. Order standard trauma radiographs of the cervical spine, chest, and pelvis, as well as additional spine radiographs or CT scans based on physical exam. Also give corticosteroids, which are proven to improve outcome. Moderate hypothermia is increasingly being utilized in the management of patients with spinal cord trauma. Surgery is done for incomplete neurologic injury when some residual function is maintained, and that is done with external compression, for example, subluxation or bone chip. MRI can visualize cord injury non-invasively. Question 14. What causes spinal cord compression? How do patients present? Spinal cord compression is usually defined as acute or subacute. Most cases of acute cord compression result from trauma. Look for the appropriate history. Subacute compression is often due to metastatic cancer, but may also result from a primary neoplasm, subdural or epidural abscess, classically seen in diabetics and due to Staphylococcus aureus, or as a result of hematoma especially after a lumbar tap or epidural-slash-spinal anesthesia in a patient with a bleeding disorder or a patient taking anticoagulation.
Patients present with local spinal pain, especially with bone metastases, and neurologic deficits below the lesion. For example, hyperreflexia, Babinski sign, weakness, or sensory loss. Question 15. How should patients with subacute spinal cord compression be diagnosed and treated? The first step in the emergency department is to give high-dose corticosteroids and order an MRI scan, which is preferred over CT. If the cause is cancer or tumor, give local radiation if the metastases are from a known primary tumor that is radiosensitive. Surgical decompression can be used if the tumor is not radiosensitive. For a hematoma or subdural or epidural abscess, surgery is indicated for decompression and drainage. Prognosis is related most closely to pretreatment function. The longer you wait to treat, the worse the prognosis. Question 16. Define syringomyelia. What causes it? How does it usually present? Syringomyelia is a central pathologic cavitation of the spinal cord, usually in the cervical or upper thoracic region. Most cases are idiopathic, but syringomyelia may also follow trauma or be related to congenital cranial base malformations, such as Arnold Chiari malformation. The classic presentation, due to involvement of the lateral spinothalamic tracts, is bilateral loss of pain and temperature sensation below the lesion in the distribution of a cape. The cavitation in the cord gradually widens to involve other tracts, causing motor and sensory deficits. MRI scan is the diagnostic imaging study of choice. The primary treatment available is surgical creation of a shunt. Question 17. Define spina bifida. How can it be prevented? Spina bifida is a congenital abnormality in which lack of fusion of the spinal column, specifically the posterior vertebral arches, allows protrusion of spinal membranes with or without spinal cord. Spina bifida occulta, the mildest form of the disease, which is a bone deficiency without dural membrane or cord protrusion, is often asymptomatic and should be suspected in patients with a triangular patch of hair over the lumbar spine. More serious defects are usually obvious and occur most often in the lumbosacral region. A meningocele is protrusion of the meninges outside the spinal canal, whereas a myelomeningocele is protrusion of meninges plus central nervous system tissue outside the spinal canal. Patients with a myelomeningocele almost always have an associated Arnold Chiari malformation. Giving folate supplementation to potential mothers reduces the incidence of spina bifida and other neural tube defects. Question 18. Define hydrocephalus. How is it recognized in children? Hydrocephalus is excessive accumulation of CSF in the cerebral ventricles. In children, look for increasing head circumference, increased intracranial pressure, bulging fontanelle, scalp vein engorgement, and paralysis of upward gaze. The most common causes include congenital malformations, tumors, and inflammation, for example, hemorrhage or meningitis. Treat the underlying cause if possible. Otherwise, a surgical shunt is created to decompress the ventricles. Question 19. In what setting does dural venous sinus thrombosis occur? How is it diagnosed and treated? 
The risk factors are similar to those for deep venous thrombosis in other areas, including hypercoagulable state, trauma, dehydration, pregnancy, oral contraceptive use, infections, for example, an extension of sinus, sinusitis or mastoiditis intracranially, nephrotic syndrome, and local tumor invasion. The diagnostic test of choice is MRI. Though hemorrhagic infarcts are common with dural venous thrombosis, treatment with anticoagulation improves outcomes. That's the end of this chapter. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, my publishing company behind USMLE Step 2 Secrets, for allowing us to put out this book in audio format. Please check out the other Inside the Boards podcasts over at InsideTheBoards.com, including the main Inside the Boards podcast and the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series for question breakdowns and tips on getting through medical school. And with that, we wrap up today's episode of USMLE Step 2 Secrets. Hi, this is Ted O'Connell. I just wanted to let you know real quick that when the time comes for you to begin studying for the USMLE Step 3, we actually now have a USMLE Step 3 subscription podcast. So I encourage you to check that out over at medpreptogo.com. We have sample episodes available. And even if you're studying for Step 2, you may actually find some of this content uh, really useful for your studies. So please do check it out.